Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. On this episode of the podcast, we'll be discussing the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision, Harris Funeral Homes, Inc. versus the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That case was decided recently, and it found that the 1964 Civil Rights Act provides employment protections for folks that identify, who identify as LGBT+. The case was handed down on June 15th and instantly became a landmark case with a 6-3 decision. So to bring listeners up to speed a little bit on the background of the case, Amy Stevens was an employee of Harris Funeral Home in Michigan. Ms. Stevens presented as male at the beginning of employment and began at some about 60 years in or so, decided that it was time to come out and begin the process of physically transitioning to present as female during the course of her employment. The funeral home terminated her employment as a result, and the EEOC determined that she had, in fact, been terminated on the basis of her sex and gender identity. The case was bundled with two other cases, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, and Altitude Express, Inc. versus Zarda. Those cases specifically dealt with discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The decision, the Supreme Court decision covers all three cases. They named that the main case is named after Harris Funeral Home. The majority opinion was written surprisingly by Justice Neil Gorsuch, and, and the majority opinion was joined by Chief Justice Roberts, another surprise. Those two joined the more liberal justices on the court to hand down this decision. This was a huge case, and the news came kind of at a pretty tumultuous time in our history. Good news is it came during Pride Month, yay. But as we all know, the month of June 2020 has been really tumultuous with so much of the social unrest here in the U.S., related to police brutality. So I wanted to kind of spend some time talking about how the importance of this case. So I am joined today by Drs. Abby McElroy and Dane Whitaker from Pride VMC. So we're going to talk about this big, big case. How are you both doing? Good. How are you? Awesome. Great. So as is our custom, these are return guests, as is our custom. I have my guests uh, tell a little bit about themselves. So uh, Abby, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, so I'm Dr. Abby McElroy. I'm the president-elect of Pride BMC. I'm also the secretary. I graduated from vet school at Tufts in 2017 and then did a master's at Michigan State. So I currently work as a postdoctoral research associate at Rhode Island Hospital and Brown University in the neurosurgery department. I study how Ehlers-Danlos syndrome affects the brain and spinal cord. Awesome. Thank you. And Dane. Hey, thanks for having us, Lisa. I really appreciate it. So I'm Dr. Dane Whitaker. I use the pronouns he, him, and his, and I'm the current president of Pride BMC. And for those of you who don't know, Pride BMC is the Pride Veterinary Medical Community. We are the LGBTQ plus vet group, if you will, representing 
LGBTQ plus folks in this country and internationally for that matter. We provide education and advocacy for queer folks in our profession. And throughout our discussion today, I will probably interchange the term LGBTQ plus, which is a mouthful of letters, with the term queer. That's just kind of my umbrella term that I like to use to, to talk about our communities. So the, the two are synonymous. I graduated in way back in 1994 from the University of Florida and been doing small animal work primarily in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last 25 years or so. Then I went back to UC Davis and got a master's in preventive veterinary medicine. So now my day job, I provide relief work for the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California, doing wildlife rehab for marine mammals. And then right now when there's a current pandemic going on, I do mostly small animal relief work. So I like to say I work on seals, sea lions, sea otters, and dogs and cats. So that's my my purview. But yeah, during during my off hours, I am the president of Pride VMC and Abby and I are busy trying to create a better world for LGBTQ plus folks in our profession. So thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So let's dive in. The decision. Big deal. Yes. Same. What'd you think when you heard about it? Well, I have to say, when the decision came down, I guess it was about a month ago now, it was on a Monday. And two days prior to that, the current administration reversed Obama era protections for trans folks in healthcare. So according to the the Affordable Care Act, you could not discriminate against trans folks who were seeking medical care. And the current administration reversed those protections. So I was pretty bummed the Friday before this Supreme Court decision came down and was pretty upset. And so two days later, to have the Supreme Court now momentously uphold rights for my community, for our community, was a little bit, kind of messed with me (laughs) a little bit, you know, and I felt at first like, okay, what smoke and mirrors are happening now? What terrible thing is going to happen now that they're trying to get me to look away from? And so I felt a little bit initially like, kind of like I was being gaslit, like, look at this great thing we're doing for your community after... I had just experienced this, what I felt was a huge setback. So it was a little bit of a kind of toss and turn around my feelings around it. And then when I started to look at it through a different lens, and Abby and I were talking about this today, okay, well, what if I live in a place that's not San Francisco? What if I live in a place where most of the folks there are very happy to discriminate against LGBTQ plus folks? And that I might be very likely to lose my job for being being transgendered. And I thought, okay, well, if I look at it through that lens, yeah, this is pretty big. This is, in fact, maybe bigger even than gay marriage because, as we were saying, a lot more people have a job than are likely to get married. So I think that, that looking at it through that lens, it is a huge, momentous thing. And... It's to me a sign that, yeah, you're darn right it's a victory. These are things that 
should have been ours to begin with. Mm-hmm. So while I am happy to celebrate it as a victory, I'm also taking it on as a sign that we have got to keep fighting because they can take it away just as easily. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my, my 180, 360 view of, of the decision. A lot has been happening, and I neglected to even mention <laughs> that there had been that yeah. previous executive order seriously just days before that really kind of, you know, was really potentially very harmful, very disappointing to the community. And and then, yeah, Monday, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so, Abby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with Dane. It felt a little bit like a bait and switch because I think the healthcare situation was so devastating and so scary on a life and death level that the decision almost felt a little bit like a letdown. I was thinking back to uh, when gay marriage passed when I was in vet school. And I mean, I can't think of a more just momentous occasion in my life where people were sobbing in the hallways and embracing. And, you know, we all went out that night um, in Boston. And I mean, it was just an incredible experience. And as Zane was saying, he and I were talking this morning. And really, this is probably a, a bigger decision in terms of how many people it impacts. And I was looking at, uh, there was a survey in 2019 that showed that um, 52% of LGBT people in 2019 lived in states where they could legally be fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity. And I think it's something that we don't necessarily think about because Dane and I are incredibly privileged in terms of where we live. I live in New England and Dane lives in California. So you know, maybe to us, it just didn't strike us as, as big of a deal as it would if we lived in a less accepting area. But again, after that decision a few days earlier about healthcare, it it did seem a little bit like smoke and mirrors, as Jane said, in terms of we're a little on edge as to what's going to happen next and how this whole situation with the current administration is going to play out. So I think that our well-being colleagues would say that this is a trauma response, right? <laughs> like you're not really sure if you can yeah. trust, you know, that this is this is real, right? I think it's really important for folks to understand the rationale of the decision, which is it was a really simple rationale. In fact, like the the majority opinion was I think only about 30 pages versus the dissenting opinion was like 100 and some odd pages. And, and, you know, the gist of it was just because you might identify an individual as a particular gender, and then they don't necessarily express themselves the way that you expect, that is rooted in sexual discrimination. So the presentation for someone doesn't necessarily match what the boss in this particular circumstance expects or desires is inherently you know, discriminatory because it is based on on sex, which is what is protect what is especially specifically noted in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And and to that end, the other part of the decision on sexual orientation again was, well, if you didn't have a problem with a same sex, I mean with a heterosexual couple, and you're but you have a problem with a same sex couple, well, there's nothing there <laughs> but sex right um so and so you know it was a really pretty simple decision and the fact that it is a 6-3 decision means that it is a harder decision to overturn in the future so it's it's very likely that you know this will 
this will be it. Not that there aren't always cases in the pipeline to challenge everything, right? So what does this decision mean, Dane, for new grads who are looking for jobs and veterinary professionals and just in general who are seeking employment? You know, I think that it is probably a a way to maybe give us a little breathing room on being our authentic selves. I mean, I think that there are, you know, a lot of folks that are going out into the job market that I, I think sort of today's younger people that are that are looking for jobs, especially in, in the world of vet medicine, are pretty savvy and pretty pretty hip on looking for places that are going to be supportive. So my hope is that that there's not going to be a situation where somebody's going to get fired. So I think that having knowing that the Supreme Court is kind of behind you and that, okay, it's going to be illegal for somebody to fire me, I think provides a little bit more breathing room for LGBTQ plus folks to be their authentic selves, right? So I know, for example, when I graduated from vet school back in 94 and identified as a lesbian, I wasn't putting that out there. I wasn't letting my employer, potential employers know or potential internships because that's what we did in those days. You stayed very compartmentalized. Your professional life and your private life are very separate. And I, my hope is that this ruling will allow us to have those two parts of ourselves melt and, and be our authentic selves in our places of work. Because study after study after study has shown that if you can be your authentic self, you're going to be a far better, more productive, happier worker than if you're in the closet or scared because you're worried you're going to get fired. So for older folks that are already in the profession and working in, you know, wherever, where you, you potentially could still become fired or get fired for being LGBTQ+, my hope is that this will allow folks to feel a little bit more comfortable about potentially coming out of the closet. I, I know that a lot of those Stigmas are hard to, that's a, a hard thing to, to deal with when that's how you lived your whole life. So I'm, I'm hoping that it will, it's just opened that closet door just a little crack further, but we'll see. Abby, want to weigh in? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Dane. I think the other issue is just that, you know, being hired is very different than being fired. So I, I think that these very like small conservative practices that maybe are the ones that would fire you if you came out uh, while working there still aren't necessarily the places that you want to work a, because if you come out, it might be a not very nice environment or a toxic environment to work in, but B it doesn't really solve the problem of those are still the the places that aren't going to hire you in the first place. And this doesn't really solve the problem of, you know, no one's being forced to hire someone who is an LGBT community. But B, you know, I think we're very lucky in vet med that we have a lot of very accepting people, first of all, and B, um, a lot of the larger corporate practices have their own, you know, diversity initiatives and their own rules about how they handle diversity in the LGBT community. So I think that, you know, we're, we're very fortunate in that way. So, I, you know, I'm not sure that it will hugely change the kinds of practices and the kinds of environments that new LGBT grads are looking for in terms of places to work. But it, it does give a level of safety to people who are maybe 
closeted and, and already out in the workforce and are worried about what would happen if, if they were to, to come out. So what advice would either of you give to employers who are who are just learning more about these issues in general? They want to do the right thing. You know, there's we've all had lots and lots of programs <laughs> for them. They may or may not have chosen to come to our programs during convention, but <laughs> those resources have been available. But but we are at a time just, you know, for so many reasons where there is a heightened sense of awareness of these issues as well as other diversity issues. So what advice might you give, and Abby, I'll start with you and then go to Dane, to employers who are like hearing the decision and going, oh, okay, do I need to do something different? Yeah, I mean, I would just say taking advantage of the existing resources and trying their best to educate themselves and realizing that, you know, having a more diverse workforce is only beneficial to them in terms of, you know, the diversity advantage and, you know, having diverse viewpoints really is just going to make them have a stronger practice and will likely bring in new clientele, honestly. So yeah, I think that there are a lot of programs available to them that they can take advantage of. Uh, They're always welcome to reach out to us at Pride BMC if they want any advice in terms of how to handle specific situations or, you know, obviously you, Lisa, are a great resource to reach out to. So I think that the frameworks are there in terms of programming or individuals to reach out to. They just have to take advantage and, and never be afraid to ask the questions because, you know, it's worse to, to not ask and nobody's going to get offended if someone is coming from a good place in terms of seeking advice in these situations. Yeah, I would agree with Abby. I think that, you know, certainly utilizing resources and, and really, I think this is a time when we're seeing an unprecedented number of corporations and organizations just willing to have the conversation. So, you know, I, I hope that that will continue and that it will go beyond the conversation. So the, the advice of, you know, seeking those resources, making a checklist, printing out that, I, would, I think the AAVMC just came out with that uh, diversity inclusion yeah. checklist that you know, with the red, green, and, yeah. and yellow <laughs> color coding. Yeah, I mean, it's it's organizational I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> so resources like that, like making a checklist so that, not only are you talking about doing the work, but you're actually doing the work, right? You're, you're actually looking at how your practice or your school or your corporation deals with diversity and inclusion and, you know, look at how supportive, is it a supportive environment for LGBTQ plus employees? And, you know, Printing that checklist out and posting it in the break room so that everybody can see it, and you know, holding the people in power accountable to actually doing the work. I think that that's the advice that I would give. You know, is, is put your money where your mouth is, and really don't just pay lip service to, oh yeah, we're we're diversity and inclusion, and we do this, that, and the other thing. When in practice, that's actually not happening. So, being accountable and utilizing the current resources because we're here. So. Great. Great. So yes, uh, AAVMC, we did just put out and we're actually going to be putting out a slightly revised one soon with all the pretty bells and whistles, but it is an organizational assessment tool that you can kind of go through and, and say, 
here are the things that we certainly at AAVMC recommend that organizations or, or practices, it certainly can be modified for that purpose, should be doing and thinking about as you, you know, advance the work that you do. One thing that I just, just want to personally add is that this decision is so important, but you still need anti-discrimination policies at the local level within your practice because this decision doesn't deal with issues around harassment, which, you know, yeah, so you can't fire someone, but harassment is still illegal. (laughs) It's still illegal. And you don't want to have a situation where you know, you might turn, you might not know that the work environment is, you know, as toxic as it might be, or that it might become toxic when someone does bring their authentic selves to that space. And so you really want to make sure that you have an anti-discrimination policy for your practice or other work environment, and that you're offering training on what types of behaviors are acceptable in that particular space. And that will help kind of give you that additional protection. But also in knowing those kinds of things, it will also bring you more talent who are willing to, you know, that that is certainly something when when folks are asking me for advice on, you know, where to look for jobs. I'm like, I don't know where you should look for a job because I'm actually not a veterinarian. But <laughs> but these are some of the things that I would ask, you know, do you have this kind of policy? Do you offer this kind of professional development in addition to you know, courses on surgery or beekeeping or whatever it is, or you pay for, you know, me to go to AVMA during the summer, are you also offering these kinds of professional development opportunities where we can build the best team that we can possibly build and have a great environment for all of us to work in? Well, and as Dana and I were talking about earlier today, the ruling also doesn't cover kind of more specific day-to-day things like dress code or um, bathroom use for your gender if you're um, trans. So those are things that would come up on a day-to-day basis in a work environment that would be really beneficial to put in your employee handbook. It would be a great signal to your employees that you're, you're welcoming of the LGBT community. And so that's a nice segue. I was about to say, what are some of the still the big the big still fights that are ahead for the queer community? Dane? Yeah, I think that certainly, you know, the, this question always comes up, right? When I, I remember when the Defense of Marriage Act fell and, you know, gay late, gay marriage became legal and and we thought, okay, well what's next? Are, are there any more civil rights fights that we could fight. And of course, the answer to that, unfortunately, is always yes. I think trans rights, obviously. Healthcare is a huge issue, as case in point with the uh, reversal on on trans protections in healthcare. You know, I, I read something this morning that the murder of Black trans women is at epidemic proportions in our country. So this is definitely something that you know, we need to address and we need to deal with. So I think those are just the, the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think that for me, just the idea that, you know, I before I felt if I wanted to take a road trip, right, as a trans person, that was no problem. And then when this ruling came down, I started to think about, okay, well, what if I go on a trip now and I get in a car accident, you know, and I'm in Idaho or whatever state, I don't know what the laws are in Idaho, but if a state other than California, 
where I'm not protected as a transgender person. And what if I go to the hospital and that doctor says, sorry, I'm, it's against my religion to treat you. That could be legal. And so, you know, thinking about privilege and what that feels like, I mean, I think that that, that is a huge issue for our community is all the different ways in which privilege affects us and when we have it and fail to use it to support others in our community that don't have it, that's oppression. So I think that that dealing with that within our own community and and the way, you know, the world deals with the LGBT community at large is is a real forefront of civil rights for, for queer folks. I agree. I mean, I think healthcare is a huge issue and it's just kind of been reinforced by recent rulings. I think that the trans community and and their issues should be at the forefront of all of our minds, especially the way that community intersects with the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder rate of Black trans women is horrifying and that should be something that we're all focused on. I think there's a lot of other issues that are more kind of niche issues. There's a lot of issues with religious exemptions for things like adoption and schools and those kind of things that um, I, I think are going to come up again in, in the next few years and, and be bigger issues. So, and I, you know, I think there's always the uh, worry that uh, gay marriage will be overturned <laughs> so, as Tate and I were talking about earlier. So I think that, uh, you know, these are all going to play out in the next, uh, you know, three to five years and it's going to be a very interesting time. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It is an election year here in the U.S. And I don't want to get, you know, partisan, but normally these types of issues would become kind of the flag planting platform. It's on the platform. And while some of these issues will probably still be on platforms for the two major parties here, 2020 has just been so <laughs> mind-blowing that it's really hard to even guess here in July what the big central issues will be politically for the election here. But certainly there are still issues that are very much unresolved, like like bathrooms, like healthcare, and yeah, and possibly, you know, an overturning of the marriage ruling. And so, you know, I think that it is all of us have a responsibility to keep paying attention. Don't don't look away. <laughs> don't look away, despite the fact that there's so many things happening and it can be a little bit distracting. And so with that, one of my last questions, kind of getting into all that's going on. So there's a pandemic, you know, social uprisings, you know, related to policing. Black Lives Matter has been really very, very active over the last two months. And there is, you know, certainly even within the umbrellas of race and sexual identity and and gender identity, this issue of Black trans women, there's just a lot happening. (laughs) So um, it seemed very hard for Pride to get a lot of traction this year. So I kind of wanted to hear about, you know, your thoughts on that and and how, how, how was your... How was your June 2020? <laughs> Abby. 
Well, it's certainly unique. Yeah, I mean, I think it. we're just seeing Pride kind of return to its roots as a resistance movement and not so much a, a party and not so much uh, commercial as it's been in, in the more recent years. I live near Providence, and what we more saw was Black Lives Matter marches, but also the intersection of Black Lives Matter and some um, trans rights rallies. So not not so much the typical rainbow pride party situation. It was definitely more of a riot slash protest situation here. And, you know, I think that's appropriate for the time that we're living in to have it not be such a joyous party type occasion this year, to have it be more of a, a somber resistance type movement this year. Yeah, it, it was particularly challenging, I think, for Pride BMC because a lot of, of what we do, you know, for our visibility and, and celebration and for our partners, particularly a lot of our, our partners that have been so incredibly supportive of our organization in vet medicine, you know, revolves around having a lot of visibility, right? So here we're, at, we're out, we're marching, we're celebrating. I mean, last year at World Pride, you know, the Pride BMC had a huge contingent of veterinarians marching in in New York to to uh, for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So it was just really an amazing experience to have that much support from our our sponsors. And so it was very challenging this year to try to figure out, okay, how are we going to work this? How do we want to to maintain connection and and support one another and you know be visible. And so we did a lot of stuff virtually. We had a couple of virtual town halls, which I think well, happy hours, I guess. Um, and those, that worked out really well. I mean, traditionally as an organization, we've done stuff online for years because we're all over the country. So that we just kind of adapted it a little bit to, to celebrate pride. And I think that for me personally, all the tumultuousness and the call to action and the support and everything that 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 has been surrounding Black Lives Matter and the social justice movement has really been a reminder, a call to action that yes, pride is a protest. And it started out as a riot. You know, Stonewall 50 years ago, there were black women of color and, and trans women and queers and gay men and lesbians took to the streets and said, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. And that, I think, really just kind of brought it all full circle for me that this is really an important part of our history. And we're seeing how important that is now to, you know, get out in the streets and protest and and make stuff happen. Because, you know, it's, I feel like there's that, that, that is our call to action. So, you know, I went to a couple of events in San Francisco, like what Abby was saying, that it was similar, very much people in the streets with wearing masks and relatively socially distant, sort of juxtapos- juxtaposition with all the boarded up businesses because of COVID. So you have this weird feeling of kind of apocalyptic people in the streets rioting without the commercial aspect of it. it was It was really kind of a strange a strange pride and a little bittersweet, but still, I think having that call to action and protest and that, that was really important to me. And I, I think that's something that, that a lot of us felt. 
that's really powerful. But yeah, I think that a lot of us are feeling a little bit like we're in the middle of one of those dystopian movies (laughs) that used to be a book, right? (laughs) For for teenagers. So, So, you know, I think that, that this, decision from the Supreme Court, hopefully, is um, a foreshadowing of, of more good things to come and more positive decisions about the rights for queer people in this country. And, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, we, you know, we're not free until we're all free. And I think that this last month or so, especially June, really has highlighted the intersectionality of what it means to be marginalized and oppressed, at least not just in the U.S., but actually abroad. There have been so many protests globally on a number of issues that that I think that this is a really interesting time to be alive in our history. And so I tell people all the time, like, what will we say about this moment, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years from now? What will the history books say? So I am really delighted that you uh, both joined me this evening to to have this really important discussion. And so I am really just really excited. So um, tell people where they can find more information about Pride BMC. President Dane. You can go to our website, pridebmc.org, and learn all kinds of information. We also have information on our social media channels. Abby, you can probably give us some more details on that. Yeah, we have a Facebook, so it's Pride BMC, uh, Instagram, also Pride BMC, and Twitter, which I can't say I know the Twitter handle or that I've ever been on Twitter, but I'm sure it's something Pride BMC. Our email is info at pridebmc.org. Great. Yes, you all are on Twitter (laughs) as well. I'm certainly not the one who runs Yes, I'm guessing neither of you are on Twitter. (laughs) No. I'm too old. You actually have an active Twitter account for the person that is running it. Thank you very much in the background for running the Pride VMC Twitter account. So uh, this has been another episode of AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guests, Dane and Abby, thank you so much for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to like uh, the podcast Facebook page, which is called AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. So with that, I will once again say thank you to my guests and we will see you next time. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you.